0: You, you never know the reason that someone comes to your your martial arts school you know somebody walking in sometimes they'll tell you like in the case like oh I need this this and this for for the for my, my child or for myself but it's the, it's the instructor's role to give kind of the right medicine so to speak sometimes like you're saying the parent might not know the right dosage of medicine that uh, the student needs particularly in the in the realm of like conflict resolution and you know physical violence but that's where the instructor should be you know the expert. And know exactly exactly what to do. It's multifaceted the the functions and the benefits of of martial arts. So, I it's one of the things that a lot of people are like. Oh, you know, I'm thinking about putting my kid either in martial arts or in soccer or basketball. I was like, there's really no contest in my mind. They should go to martial arts because of that that aspect. That it's not just about putting on the uniform and you're a martial artist for the length of your class. It's something that should now bleed into every aspect of your life. You are a martial artist. On and off the mat, you, you live these principles. Sure.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Conversations from the Hearth. Today we are joined by sensei sean devoy a lifelong martial artist and founder of satori life center devoy sensei grew up surrounded by martial artists both friends and family he shared his first martial arts memory with his grandfather in their backyard where they practiced self-defense moves rooted in judo and japanese jiu-jitsu devoy sensei began formal training around four years old in south africa at a dojo teaching shukakai shito-ryu karate after earning his first degree black belt in 1996 He has since returned to the United States and traveled abroad in his Warrior's Pilgrimage, or Musha Shugyo, studying in arts such as Okinawan Karate, Japanese Kickboxing, Taekwondo, Japanese and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, Bujikan, Nimpo, Taijutsu, and more. Devoy Sensei currently manages a martial arts school in Utah and teaches adult private lessons focused on traditional martial arts through the filter of practical self-defense, our topic of conversation today.
2: So what is a traditional martial arts in your mind and what is a progressive martial art? Oh, very, very good question. A tricky question because it does depend on the
0: tradition that you're you're discussing. As you mentioned with with judo, judo is a very good example of this because we have a kind of a clear clear line. You have uh, Kano sensei who studied all these koryu arts in a time when Japan was losing kind of the 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 flavor of old school martial arts. They didn't particularly like uh, the, the samurai culture anymore. They're embracing more Western ideas. So uh, from the, that model, I think it would be easy to say that more of the, the arts that were used in the battlefield are preserved under the the, the paradigm of, of combat-based martial arts before judo was was implemented. Uh, you even look at some of the, the nomenclature. You have uh, bugei is an older way to say martial arts in Japanese. And then you have bujitsu comes a bit later. And then finally, it's Budo, and each represents a, a change in, in focus. You have Judo; uh, it is in its modern form. It's primarily sportive. You see more Olympic Judo than you see old style, early 1900s mm-hmm. Judo. So, for me, when martial arts were were closer to their the original intent, battlefield, or it depends on the tradition, of course. This would be in my mind more more traditional now there are other people who say no no you know there is such a thing as traditional uh, uh karate like the japanese karate some people say is is traditional and someone like myself who studied okinawa karate like whoa whoa, hey okinawa karate is is traditional so it, it all depends on where you slice that pie mm-hmm. if, if that makes sense so uh the the more progressive i think is less to do with the style and more the practitioner uh you can be a traditional martial artist and has, still have the cutting edge approach to training and keeping keep an open mind I think that's much more more important uh you look at all the the founding masters of traditional disciplines quote unquote they all had this they say they face the same challenges that uh, modern martial art masters face in that okay this balance of what I learned versus what i'm studying and you have these splinter organizations form because they're 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 Testing out what they what they inherited. So in a weird way, almost being progressive is a is a type of tradition in itself.
2: Mm-hmm. Hopefully, that makes sense. No, that's a really uh, interesting definition, and I think it makes sense. I think what most people think of traditional martial arts, they usually think of you know karate and taekwondo and hapkido and these martial arts, and some of them obviously can trace that lineage back to battlefield martial arts. Some may not be able to, but, um, I think they would be all kind of lumped into traditional martial arts. One of the things that I would put on there as well is, is a heavy emphasis on, uh, you know, respect and discipline and, um, martial arts for a purpose that is just higher than fighting. Um, for me being a martial artist is, it's very, and I don't want to I wouldn't give my my son or daughter a gun without teaching them how to use it, and so for me that is integrally tied to to the martial arts and what makes us different than just some fighter. You know, you know, it's not just fighting. You know, fighting disciplines have existed for forever, but martial arts is kind of a special thing. Um, and in my mind. You know, I, and you know, in the modern modern bio, Maybe you know, people would say fighting is harder than martial arts, but in my mind, martial arts is harder than fighting because it's 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 fighting with a purpose.
0: Um, makes a lot of sense.
2: Uh, I think
0: you know you see this change throughout, throughout history. The emphasis, a lot of the the politics of the time will influence the development of of the martial art. Um, you have like the the example of the jujitsu becoming judo uh clearly it's more of that uh philosophical aspect added to jujitsu and combined with more of the sportive play uh censoring of some of the techniques and you and you get judo the the cool thing about you know these days living in the u.s and this interconnectivity with uh, technology is that you get the best of a lot of these different aspects you you can train traditional martial arts and understand the philosophy and the principles at the same time be Be practical, but um, absolutely right that yeah, there's uh, a person throwing punches and kicks doesn't necessarily learn the deeper the deeper aspect to martial artists. That I say a lot of uh, tell this to a lot of my students that you know anything that you do should reflect your martial art. How you interact with someone at the grocery store, how you treat the CEO and you treat the janitor is going to tell me a lot as to your your approach to to martial arts. So especially um, when you get into even the, the self-defense training. I don't teach people um, martial arts particularly ex- extremely practical type of martial arts. If I don't think their character is in check, it would be rather counterproductive or uh, raising a, a bad society, so to speak.
2: And I would I would also add and this has been my experience both for myself and working with other people. The more you handle things physically, by by fighting on the floor, the more you want to handle things physically because you become very dominant in that realm. So when words start to fail you and you you can't verbally rack and tour your way out of a, a of a situation, you tend to want to puff out your chest and say, "Well, I'm going to physically handle this." And if you don't pile on an equal measure of moral training, you know respect, discipline, self control, these sorts of things, you're very likely to fall. Uh, prey to that kind of mindset, and so um, you know that's why I think it's so important. So important, and I and I I don't exclude myself from that. I think it, it's you know that's not the way to handle things. um You know, we in my mind we should use self defense only in rare situations when it's absolutely necessary. It's not something that we go around flaunting and 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 uh, using to intimidate people
0: with uh, proper training. Uh, the, the ability to handle that verbal assault, uh, w- you'll be able to hopefully, you know, 90% of your situations that ever occur, you should be able to, uh, tactfully resolve just, just in that realm. If your training is, is, is appropriate, if, if that makes sense, if it's, uh, relevant to, to the situations. what tends to happen is you're only able to speak through the language that you're taught. So I see a lot of martial arts schools, you you'll, um, you know, you'll end up on the mat and everything is physical. They never discuss that what violence actually looks like, how it escalates. When they're in the in the realm of like, okay, throwing punches and kicks and clinches and throws and whatnot, they're they're very very comfortable in that realm. But it's the lead up, the gray area between, is it a fight yet, and it's not, is where I think most martial arts tend to fail, and it's always just the lack of lack of training. So uh, to to your point, uh, proper martial arts teaches you that that confidence that okay, I don't need to default to that that right straight or whatever to end, end this in this fight i have the skills to to verbally de-escalate and i also have the confidence that i don't have to rise to every challenge and like i said puff out your chest um part of good self-defense of course is that level-headedness to see really what what is worth physically reacting to and, and what isn't yeah
2: mm. yeah i could keep going down that road a lot um <laughs> but that's a
1: great that would be a great later conversation you know that opening up the idea of the lead up and then kind of yeah, aftermath,
2: um. I'll just say one thing before I move on, which is okay. that, you know, a lot of parents come to me, and they want me to teach their kids to be like these monsters, so you can just go out and murder anybody <laughs> and mess with them, and that's just a totally wrong mindset, you know, you basically want me to make your kid into a bully, and what you you have a kid, he's, he's getting socially isolated and then he gets ostracized and he's, he's having trouble in school. He comes to us looking for confidence and to fit back into society. The worst thing he can do is when the kid, his friend, or not really friend, but kid at school says like, hey, four eyes, and he just goes over and then like curb stomps him into the ground that's the 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 fastest way for that kid to get socially ostracized for the rest of his life. You know what I mean? So just having physical prowess and the ability to defend yourself and fight doesn't mean that you're going to be able to put yourself in a better position in your social um, hierarchy that's around you. Mm-hmm. It's better for you to learn those social skills, that verbal judo, like you're talking about, so that you can navigate that. And one of the things that I... I try to impress upon my leadership team all the time is that a lot of the people that are coming in here have been sort of cast out of society and they're looking for companionship, friendship, and they just need somebody to be patient with them, You know, as they, as they kind of struggle to, um, you know, articulate themselves and, and become leaders, be patient enough to be their friend and stay by their side until they can develop those, those social skills. To get back on the right track uh, at school and at home, at work, and wherever uh, is needed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Any final thoughts before I move on from that? No, absolutely. Um, you
0: you never know the reason that someone comes to your your martial arts school. You know, somebody walking in. Sometimes they'll tell you, like in the case, like, "Oh, I need this, this, and this for for the for my my child or for myself." But it's the it's the instructor's role to give kind of the right medicine, so to speak. Sometimes, like you're saying, the parent might not know the right dosage of medicine that uh, the student needs, particularly in the in the realm of like conflict resolution and you know, physical violence. But that's where the instructor should be, you know, the expert and know exactly exactly what to do. It's multifaceted, the, the functions and the benefits of, of martial arts. So I, it's one of the things that a lot of people are like, oh, you know, I'm thinking about putting my kid either in martial arts or in soccer or basketball. I was like, There's really no contest in my mind. They should go. To martial arts because of that that aspect that it's not just about putting on the uniform and you're a martial artist for the length of your class. It's something that should now bleed into every aspect of your life. You are a martial artist on and off the mat. You you live these these principles.
2: Sure. Okay. So getting back on topic, uh, making traditional martial arts practical. Um, where do you start with that? Uh, what does practical mean to you? And um, how do you, how do you? Oh, good, good question.
0: So um, with uh, earlier that definition of, you know, um, what is traditional, what is practical? Uh, see, I grew up in uh, South Africa, which is culturally a rather different type of, of thing. So when uh, learning martial arts, you don't usually get uh, a person who's like, oh, I'm learning it to do tricks and backflips and all this kind of stuff it was very much practically focused because you didn't have to think too much about like what does violence actually look like you know what i mean it was it was there um so to to answer the question practical means you know uh things go south really fast somebody is is on you and it's not uh to the uh it's not a sportive event it's someone actually trying to physically cause you you know permanent damage and your life what what can you do in that type of situation so the When we think of kind of the cliche traditional martial arts school, it's, at least in the Japanese method, it's kind of the the kihon, the basics, then the kata, these formal patterns of movement that you do. And then it's kumite, which is um, a rule-based sparring that that you would practice. And then they'll sprinkle in self-defense kind of as an afterthought. Like, okay, we've got about five minutes. Run through self-defense one through four. They treat self-defense much like they treat kata. It's it's uh, kind of a box that you check off, and you're like, oh, you, you've got it. your self defense approved. That's not kind of how how it plays out. Um, so rather than uh, how I used to teach uh, martial arts was was very much you know following that that particular pattern. But if you think of a student joining your your school and they train say for six months, and they quit after six months, what have they learned in terms of what they can practically apply? Uh, punching the air or blocking or I mean, that you can say something to the, you know, maybe the benefit of coordination and control and all, all these type of principles. But in terms of somebody grabbing you and you know, throwing you against the elevator, knife in your neck kind of a thing, it's, you, you haven't taught the student that much in that realm. So for me, the practical martial arts is what, what actually works when I need it in that when everything else has failed, chips are down, what does that look like? So uh, I have kind of a, a filter in my mind because I've done, like, like yourself, I've done a lot of different martial arts. And the struggle that I see teaching practical martial arts, at least from the traditional perspective, is when you have studied a lot of different martial arts, you have many answers for one or two questions, if that makes sense. So somebody throws a, throws a punch, like, okay, I'll bob weave, or I'll cover, or I'll sword hand block. But under stress, and that situation is imminent, you can't do three moves, you have to choose one. So the, the first principle that I kind of focus on when I'm teaching self-defense is simplicity. That's the principle number one. Mm-hmm. Uh, under, under stress, that's what you're going to be able to access. And that's what you're going to be able to, to apply. And I, I have a list that I kind of go through, but f- uh, simple is, is the first one. And uh, simple in the sense, not only of the, the technique, but also there's this balance in the technical choice and how you train the technique. So you can have practical techniques, but how you train the practical techniques might not be that practical. So when I say teaching martial arts in a practical ma- uh, manner or making traditional martial arts practical, I think there's something to be said for uh, a practical way of teaching effective techniques.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, makes sense, hopefully? Yes, yeah, no, I think, you know, one of the things that BJJ did uh, really well is... It has this formula, of basically fifty percent drilling, fifty percent sparring, which I think is really important to accomplish a lot of what you're talking about. Because through sparring, you kind of realize everyone realizes that simplicity is king. You can have all this stuff going on in your head, but it doesn't really matter when you get down to um, brass tacks and you're actually got someone standing in front of you trying to punch your head off. Um, so yeah, yeah, for sure and. Um I think it's it's a really complicated subject as well uh to go off a little bit in a different direction. Um, you know, when I was over in Korea, for example, I, I trained in Taekwondo when I was a kid, and much like you, I just wanted to learn how to defend myself. I didn't care about doing flashy kicks and all this other stuff. Um, and I think most Americans are like that. You know, one of the problems that Taekwondo has right now is it's basically been killing itself over the last like 15, 20 years. As it's just been so focused on sport and on the Olympics, and the reason why that is is the same reason that Koreans don't care about their traditional culture and they're tearing down all their historic buildings and they put up these concrete sky rises, is they're just so focused on anything forward that makes it to the world stage that that's the direction they need to be keep moving, and they have made some incredible leaps and bounds because of that. Because of that, you know, you get K-pop and grand dramas and Taekwondo and a lot of stuff getting out there and getting seen, but. The thing that's so sad is just like in Korea, the people who are um, protecting those um, historic uh, neighborhoods, uh, the last ones in Korea are all expats, is because that that culture is more embodied by Westerners and the Western mindset. And where we're coming from, everyone else, I feel like in the world besides like East Asia, is self-defense. We want to learn self-defense. And that's why we're interested. I've had on my prospective student survey uh, Olympic sport since the day I opened six years ago. Not one person has ever checked it, that they're interested in that. Everyone's interested in self-defense. Everyone checks that one. You know, fitness and leadership life skills. Those are the reasons people do martial arts. And um, anyway, so I started for that reason. And, you know, that's very close and near and dear to my heart. You know, practicality, self-defense. I agree with a lot of what you're saying there. Um, but when I went over to Korea, I found a lot of people were just obsessed with sport. And you know, at the Hogwan level, the the Jeokuan level actually was very low level martial arts. I thought even lower than America, you know? because in America, even the the good martial artists, they stay at the academy level and they make the academy more appear. But in Korea, if you're serious about Taekwondo, you go to the, uh, elementary school team, the middle school team, and you train with them. And at that level, that is way higher than anything over here. There's no equivalent over here. Even these MMA guys who think they're so great, such great athletes and they're training four hours a day. Yeah, yeah, right. You know, my wife, who you met, master son of, she trained eight hours a day in two hour sections. And she, when she went off to her boarding school, she was told, you're going to sleep right next to your coach. And your coach is going to shave off your head and he's going to tell you what you can eat. You can never wear makeup. You can't have a boyfriend or girlfriend. And you're going to basically eat, sleep, and breathe nothing but martial arts. And that's your life. So these people, their athletic level is way up here. I mean, they're not, you can't even compete with them. Americans are like, yeah, I work my, my nine to five job and I go a roll in and I do a couple of extra hours of training. It's like, no, no, they're not the same. They're not the same. Okay. But here's the thing. The Taekwondo guys are so obsessed with with Olympic sport that they're doing now. Olympic sport has gotten so screwed up with all the rules being so complicated and whatnot. You see like scorpion kicks and all this stupid flippy dippy stuff that doesn't work in reality. But if they just took a little bit of time and changed the way they were doing those moves, you know, uh, they would be monsters. They would be monsters. They would be murdering a lot of the like, you know, Muay Thai guys back here in America that are, you know, been training to train a couple of hours a week. Um, so it's, it's just this, like you said, it's this, it's this hard, um, hard line where it's like, well, how are you spending your time? You know, mm-hmm. and um, you can, you can train really, really hard, but if you're not putting it in the right place, it's not gonna, it's not gonna amount to the gains that you want. And on the other hand, you can be a great technician up here, okay. But if you're not a great athlete, you're not going to be a great fighter, or you know, great at fighting. You know what I mean? That's very important too. So you need both of these uh, sides of the coin. Oh, absolutely.
0: the 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 sport issue is is an interesting one because um, back to the the judo judo example, you had. Uh, judo before was a much bigger category Uh, you look at the Kodokan judo written by Kano one of uh, you know the staple books of of judo Uh, it has striking in there tons of ground clinch uh, lots of throws that are now illegal but then judo now is primarily Olympic judo and then a small piece of it has switched to you know full spectrum training of of judo and the skill set is is quite different uh karate was a demonstration sport in the the last olympics and in my mind it was a bit atrocious actually they had to, one of the fights guy gets kicked in the head knocked out they have to wake him up and award him his uh gold medal because the rules state that you can't excessive force to to knock somebody out it's just backwards backwards logic to me uh anytime you have that overly specialized skill set of course you have a lot of uh, practitioners training in it and you're going to get some really, really impressive athletes, but we also fall, I think, in love with that as representing something that it's not. Okay, that's reality. Well, no, no, it's a, it has aspects of reality to it. We just have to understand where where those those parameters lie. Um, I remember training with uh a, she was from the East Coast. she's a taekwondo, uh, I think, a fourth or fifth degree black belt. She's really, really good. She had done a lot of the Olympic style. All we had to do was modify her kick to just a, a low line type of a kick and the amount of power that she could produce everyone in the room would just stopped training and just looked over her hitting the bag it was a self-defense based type of kick just a low line kick and i asked her have you ever thrown it like that no no i haven't but she has all that that skill set from the from the taekwondo training so it's just a modification sometimes just oh. a slight
2: like calibration you know who Duke rufus is yes yeah famous kickboxer yeah yeah, yeah. So I trained with them. Okay, when I first went over there, um, I started training with them, and the Duke Rufus was showing me kicks. His coach was showing me kicks. My kick was like ten times stronger than—I mean, ten times an exaggeration—but it was a lot stronger <laughs> than anyone else on the floor. I was just laying people out left and right, and you know, the slight modification, the way that you actually kick in karate is not that different from Muay Thai. And Muay Thai like to focus a little more on the shin, but it's it's generally a similar way to generate power. So. It, it, all you need to do is just make slight adaptations, and the, the the skill that you've been honing will become effective. That's why those judo guys, if they just learned a little bit more about Jiu-Jitsu, they would be monsters. They would be monsters because they're they they understand, you know, uh, breaking people's balance and and and, um, and timing and distancing and footwork so much better than a lot of people who just uh go through a technical theory you know that's i think the big debate here too is um you know you got people on two sides of the coin the one side is like okay well you know in reality the the, the ways that we're going to win is by tearing out people's testicles and gouging out their eyes and all these horrible things that we can't do in real sparring okay and then those guys a lot of times they don't spar okay I'm just making two extreme extreme points. I yeah, know yeah, people yeah, are kind of yeah. somewhere in the middle, but they don't really spar. And then you got the other people over here who have basically made it really safe to spar. So they spar all the time, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they you kind of need both. You kind of need both. You need to like make really safe rules so people don't get injured. So you can you can work on your timing and distancing and all that kind of stuff and increase your fitness. But you also need to work on um you know the self those core self-defense skills because back when the UFC first came out you know how everyone was winning like tearing their testicles out and gouging out their eyes in all these horrible ways that y- you don't see anymore and everyone says well you know UFC is real fighting it's like it's not real fighting guys because that's how everyone was winning and everyone's getting maimed and they had to stop it
0: mm-hmm. absolutely and it's that's a solid point that you bring up this uh you do get this yeah there's a line in the sand so to speak the the self-defense guy is always the guy who's like way out of shape and it's like I just hit you in the eyes I just kick you in the groin you know but it's it, it we don't want to throw the baby out with the bath water we're not saying that sparring is is bad of course resistance training is uh excellent so the best one of the fastest ways to to retain what you've you've learned apply exactly what you've learned so uh resistance training um uh, can be modified. This this mar uh, this model from sparring, we can adapt to self-defense. So there anytime you train, there's a, a concept called a training scar. And this is the idea that you learn a habit that doesn't necessarily aid you when you apply uh, when you apply it. So any any training drill that you do has a training scar, whether it's I'm pulling a punch so I don't hurt my training partner, or when I throw I lift up a little bit so I don't impact the floor as much, or what what's allowed to be struck and what's not. But you have to be aware of your training scars and then basically overlap your training that you fill in these cars in other ways. So, uh, of course, the the danger in, in sparring uh, is try to be eliminated, right? They take out all these dangerous moves. So they they get really, really good at core foundational martial arts under stress. So if you don't have that in your self-defense, you might say, I'm going to poke somebody, or a guy or somebody. But if you haven't drilled it under stress, you're not going to be able to apply it. Mm-hmm. So the ability to, to take uh, resistance training what well, the benefits of, of sparring essentially, and apply it to self defense. I think is high high priority. So uh, you know, uh, uncomfortable situations, contextual drills, uh, giving uh, life to to self defense. Even in a Brazilian Jiu Jitsu, they do such a good job at resistance training when they when they're sparring. They, they're going you know basically full force within the, the rule structure. But then it's always funny when some schools teach self-defense in the jujitsu school, then all of a sudden they change into like mannequins. And it's like, okay, you grab me here and we do this. And it, be, it gets all choppy. A school that two seconds ago, they were launching each other, going for chokes, full speed, full power. Um, but that, that's not all schools. I mean, there are jujitsu schools, of course, that keep that same resistance in a training for, for the self-defense. So I think um, they, like you said, the balance is, is most important. And recognizing that, Uh, sparring isn't reality Uh, there is um, a ton of benefit to sparring but we also have to understand that uh, if we if we let two students spar in a defined rule set they're naturally going to default to the strength so this guy say he has a great backhand and a sidekick he's going to use that over and over and over because that's his bread and butter he doesn't have to put himself in deep water so to speak Uh, he plays to his his strength over time maybe he'll go up against more advanced people who change angles on him and he has to change his strategy but uh, generally speaking, you play it safe. So the cool thing about self-defense training is we put everybody in the worst case possible. That there's no, you're going to look good doing this drill. No, no, that's not the point of the drill. It's uh, survival. And, you know, there we can get into, you know, this, this, this podcast or, or another one, uh, creating contextual drills and, and, and things, things related to that. So uh, I'm not, definitely not on the side of no sparring. We spar at, at my school, but we also do uh, more live drilling because I think it gets the benefit of of both aspects to it. And understanding training scars and uh, uh, training in such a way that it mitigates the amount of training scars is important.
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm sure you're um, aware of CrossFit and like the sort of philosophy behind CrossFit, where it's like we just try and do things that like challenge us in new ways because when you do the same thing again and again you get so good at it that it's not really stressful anymore so then you try to like do other weird things to kind of keep stressing your body in new unique ways you remember the first time you went from your first school to your second school and you did everything so good at your first school and then you go to your second school and the instructor asks you to do it just a little bit differently and you're like i suck at this what happened i was so good i was like the best on the floor before but now he's asking me to do it lead leg forward or I got to do a little turn before I do it and I'm falling all over the place. And that's why I think it's so important to diversify your training as much as possible to fill in all those little gaps that might exist, kind of like what you're saying, between the different things. So like for me, you know, we go to a lot of different competitions. We don't just go to like one. And I think that that will help make my students most rounded. And not like try to fight within the rule set, you know, like, oh, I okay, get okay, in this, you know, in, in, even a jiu-jitsu tournament, it's got a really strict rule set, you know, you can't do ankle locks until your blue belt and leg bars until your brown belt. I don't know, they got all these, these rules. You can't do crab claw takedowns. I mean, that was like a bread and butter technique I learned back when I was, when I was first growing up. Anyway, there's so many things you can't do. You know, if you if you, you can't do a jerk like a, a jerk submission, obviously that's super dangerous, and you can't gouge, and you can't really do pressure points unless you want to be sort of as a, kind of a dickhead. Um, you know, there's there's like so much you can't do, but if you you know get some of that when you're doing your live drilling, you know on the floor, you know if you uh, can get your full contact in with your red man suit, and you know you just jumping through all these different kinds of experiences. Then you're going to be the most well-rounded, much the same way that like a CrossFit person is a really well-rounded athlete. Um, you're going to be a really well-rounded martial artist. Nope, absolutely.
0: Oh, solid point. Yeah, you want to be able to see the subject from as many perspectives as you can. Um, it also uh, depends on the, the flavor of the school. You know, there's some schools that don't necessarily tout themselves as a, as a self-defense school. Um, so their focus is entirely in a, in a different direction. I felt the difference when I went from Japanese jujitsu to judo, because essentially the curriculum is actually we, we have all the same throws that they have in judo. But how they break the balance, how they do the kuzushi is slightly different. I remember, OK, Osotoga, uh, which is a stepping outward, reaping throw. We would break balance like with a chin tap, fingers in the eye, step behind and throw I remember the the uh, judo coach asked me, "Okay, show me, show me uh, osoto gari." Like, whoa, what are you doing? No, you can't do that. You know, that's not how we do it here. But then when I learned how they break posture, I said, "Okay, I can I can use this in in Japanese jujitsu." It's it's another way of looking at the same subject, understanding it deeper. So when I do teach throws, I use a combination of nomenclature from from you know all the the different traditions. So. Uh, you know, absolutely. One thing I would like to kind of shift to, if if possible, is this filter for self-defense that we've talked about training different martial arts. What do we decide to actually teach when we teach self-defense? Because the the danger. Oh, you have a question? Yeah, go for it. Well, it's, so,
1: it's so funny you say this. This is the next question I was going to throw in. Is you know we have these uh, ideas of being well-rounded, right? Not ideas, but you know the truth behind that is you you know to be well-rounded, you have to start filling in those um training scars or you know those gaps in training and what does that look like how do you teach a curriculum that is both well-rounded but also simple
0: and good question so i I think that's a little bit about where you're moving into um yes yes so the 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 trouble for a lot of martial artists i faced this when i was putting together the curriculum that i teach privately Um, we learn all these different techniques right like i said bob weave a cover a sword hand block uh, slip back whatever response you have now say for example you're you're standing uh at a at a coffee shop you're sitting there out the corner of your eye you see somebody's arms move towards you now i could choose any one of those responses to 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 uh reply to that that hook just coming out the, the blind side but it's, it's a split second now understand that in that split second i won't have the time to distinguish whether he has a club in his hand he has a knife in his hand or if it's a fist so if I do a slip, if it's a fist, no problem. If it's a knife, maybe I lost an eye, if it's a club, I just took a smack to the head. So when we talk about simplicity, it's this uh, principle of consistency across categories. So the category, categories, in this case being weapons and being empty hand. So although it's not as fashionable as it is, I do teach kind of a square blocking from uh, just a, a huge gross motor uh, attack to, to stop that impact because I don't know if that's a knife. It's a stick, it's a empty hand. Um, but I have to ensure that I survive. Now, from a sport perspective, I've never told my students, well, block, yeah. block really rigid and move in and stop the stop the attack. But if I'm teaching through the filter of self-defense, that's my my first uh, yeah. thing I have to do is simplify my my curriculum. Because if I tell uh, the student, oh, I'm going to teach you 100 things for 100 situations, I've essentially
2: taught them nothing for every situation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, does that make sense? So, you know, that's really, it's an interesting... I agree with what you're saying. I just want to play a little devil's advocate and throw a little spice in there. Absolutely. Um So, what you're talking, what, what you're describing to me, reminds me a lot of problemaga and the theory behind developing Krav Maga, Um, because you don't really know how they're going to attack. You know, most people get attacked by a knife. Eighty percent of people who get attacked by a knife. Don't know they're being attacked by a knife until after the fact because it's dark. It's a small item. They think they're getting punched, and then they walk away with like sixteen holes in their body. Um, so I, I, I totally agree, but then, you know, when I looked at, you know, I, I trained in Krav Maga, I didn't end up getting a rank cause they wanted like $500 a month for me to maintain ranking Krav Maga. I was like, this is totally a scam. <laughs> anyway, great marketers. Cause you don't realize that <laughs> from the outside, but once you get into the organization, you realize it really is about this. Um, but one of the things about their curriculum that I started to realize is it's almost too simple. And some of the things like, okay, like they have this plucky motion, okay? Someone grabs you like this and you go, boom, you break like this. And the reason why you do that, right, is because your first instinct when they grab your neck is to grab onto their wrist. So your defense should start from here, okay? So you're going to break like this. and You're going to show a strike to the groin and maybe come over with a couple of punches. The thing about that, though, it's not really good. It's so ridiculously hard to do that. That is incredibly hard to do. And the BJJ break like this or or many other ways of breaking out of that are much stronger, less intuitive, but much stronger. And there's this this interplay between, okay, we can make it simpler and it'll be more universal, or we can make it more specific and it'll be better at its job. And it's like, you can't really get around that, you know, so that will always be a thing uh, to remember as you're learning curriculum and as you're, you're, you know, developing your own curriculum as a martial artist. And I don't think there's like, there's one right answer. I'm really against dogma. I really don't like it when people think like, okay, I got the ultimate way to defend yourself. Like, let me show you how it's done. It's like, you don't know anything about martial arts. If you think there's one way, like the one ultimate way, like you that's the kind of arrogance that got us in this place in the first place where we all thought like, Ooh, if the karate guy and the Taekwondo guy fight, like let's say I'm the karate guy. I was like, I will kill that Taekwondo guy. Like he, like, like we don't even need to fight because I know I'll kill him. You know, like that's the kind of arrogance that was existed back in the nineties before we started mixing and mashing and figuring things out.
0: Absolutely. So uh, to, to your point, uh, this balance between uh, teaching something that you, um, is simple, could be overly simple. And there's a better answer uh, that might be a bit more technical, we could say. Uh, It all depends on your goal. Uh, Somebody coming in first six months, um, me teaching them maybe the best type of uh, defense for a particular movement might be more technical. But if my goal in that six months is to instill foundational martial arts skills, I would play to overly simple. Now, if they plan on, okay, you know, they've done six months, they've seen the self-defense and, oh, I want to dive in deeper. Now we can play the what-ifs and, and it's like, okay, listen, we did this defense. Now say the opponent is really strong and the force is more this way or they're flaring their elbows out or they're driving their thumbs forward. It changes the dynamic slightly. And yet we get into these variations and that's essentially where they approach martial arts from, whereas um, traditional martial arts, uh, you know, from the 1950s and on approach is very specific Mm -hmm. right your thumb has to be in this spot uh, rather than what the the needs of the the people coming in Mm -hmm. uh you're, you're also on a limited time as well a person coming in might not want to focus on the the aesthetic part of the practice rather than the practical so yeah there might be uh things down the road that okay this is a much better answer but it's a lot more steps to it so one another another principle is um, adaptability. So we talked about simplicity was one of them, and the adaptability would be would be the next thing. I need to teach a, a simple skill set like we talked before that I can use in a variety of situations. So sometimes when we get uh, more technical, we uh, default to being more specific. So there there are certain things with um, uh-huh. jujitsu like you survival jujitsu. Is actually rather easy to learn. You may have figured this out. You know, if you're messing about with your friends, trying out jujitsu moves on each other in the garage, you don't need too much jujitsu to outdo the average person. You know what I mean? Like, okay, I just know how to change position. I, you, You're one step ahead of them. But then when you say you jump to training with like a purple belt, it's like, whoa, okay. Now they know all the other stuff. And now the things I was doing before, which did catch all these other people, not going to work on this guy because he's seen all the tricks. And even so at, in Brazilian jujitsu, the brown to the black belt, um the the simple stuff doesn't work anymore I mean it, it can if you, if you understand all the the contingencies and the what-ifs but but to your point how, what I would say is it focuses it has to focus on your end goal so if I want to instill good self-defense say in a six-month program now granted we all know that martial arts um good self-defense is a lifestyle right good self-defense is an all-encompassing practice but per- people coming in to martial arts Fitness, self-defense, those are the two boxes mainly that they come in for. So in the first six months, that is what I want to get them attached to. And if they do quit, that that's the benefit that
2: they're leaving with is, is that. So hopefully that kind of answers your, your question. I think it's the difference between self-defense courses and martial arts to me. You know, like when I teach a self-defense seminar, I'm just trying to bundle up the most effective, simplistic things I can, to give them, get them up to the highest speed possible. You know, I might not even show them how to do a punch because a punch is really hard to do. You know, punch, you have a good chance of breaking your hand if you don't land it right. It's actually hard to keep your wrist taut. You know, when you're first starting out, palm strikes much better choice. Hammer fist, elbow strikes, keeping it really simple. You know, here's something. Okay, let's go off in a little bit different direction because here's (laughs) a problem I have, okay? You you say you're working at Premier Martial Arts and we know Premier Martial Arts is one of the biggest franchises in America and they're very good with kids and they have... A very get big kids following right and then on the other hand you're doing your private martial arts instruction which sounds like it's really badass and hardcore and you know like elite swat training or something like that okay so these are two, two extremes right and like we were discussing before the show um you know if you want to do martial arts every day like it's the only thing you're doing with your time you kind of have to do martial arts professionally which means you have to have kids because kids is where a lot of the money is coming from so we can keep the lights on, right? Well, in my own development of really practical self-defense curriculum, one of the things that I've run into is like, yeah, it's really fun when you take that little six-year-old and you say, okay, here's what you can do. You're going to slap him in the groin, then you're going <laughs> to hit him in the ears, and then you're going to like yeah. focus. It's like, uh, the kids just are like, whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, whoa. This is just way too much at like seven, eight years old, you know? Like, if I say, okay, go in there and, like, do a jab cross, you know, and a roundhouse kick, they're like, okay, I can do that. But when I start talking about, like, oh, headbutting them in the face and gouging out their eyes and stuff like that, which is, of course, very practical self-defense, it's like, whoa. Absolutely.
0: Especially when mom's on the side watching their kid and, oh, the instructor just said, you know, hit him in the neck. It's that Cobra Kai thing, right? Um, it Yes, absolutely. Uh, all my private that? students, I should I should put the caveat, all my private students are adults. I teach adults. But... Uh, to your point, yes. Uh, well, uh, Premier Martial Arts has tons of uh, kids' classes. And generally uh, speaking, how I teach kids' classes, it's everything that we teach. This is, I think, for a good uh, model for martial arts as well as the business of martial arts. Is it must be catered to the person who's coming in the door. Um, I think this is also a, a struggle for a lot of traditional martial arts schools. Some guy comes in and is like, I'm looking for fitness and self-defense. Okay, get in a horse stance and punch the air. You know this kind of a thing doesn't fit that model, and the same thing with kids. I can't be teaching eye gouges and okay, dropping on his head and stomping on the throat. This type of a thing to to a child. But what is something that a parent would want them to learn? Uh, basically, defense against a bully. I mean, they, they, you hear sometimes, oh, abduction cases. Statistically, such a small number. More likely, bullying is is going to be the issue. So techniques that deal with bullies uh, in a safe safe way, but more. Uh, less less, you know, eye gouges, more the idea of assertiveness, controlling distance, learning to clench safely, foundational strikes. And it, to your point, the, the fist versus the palm heel, a lot of the the combatives that, that I teach for the self-defense is drawn from, you know, the World War II Fairbairn methods, palm heel strikes, exactly the, the same same idea that you were you were mentioning. But regarding the kids, yes. Uh you have to customize it to to whoever's coming in into your school. So I would never teach a, a child, you know, an eye gouge or, or a groin strike, uh, would be character development would be number one, you know, fight, a uh, fighting, avoid, uh, avoid fighting, uh, assertiveness, these, these type of, uh, character attributes I would, I would instill in, in the students before. You know, that,
2: that character development is so important. I know it's not the topic for today, but I feel like it's so intrinsically intertwined with what everything we talk about in the martial arts, because when that kid comes in the parent wants us to teach him how to fight but what the parent really wants they don't know it is they want that kid to become a leader so that people look up to him and he doesn't have to fight and the way to do that is through that character development the respect the discipline you know that's just it's the most important thing to take away and for me like when when I'm when I'm working with children and when I'm working with white belts the thing that I'm trying to do is impart those skills first before we even get into the really hardcore self-defense skills, because I wanna make sure that they're both, that they're an adult, that they're vetted, they're not someone that's coming in just trying to be a, a tough guy. And if they're a kid, that they understand why we're doing martial arts in the first place.
0: Uh, to the, the, you know, making traditional martial arts more, more practical, we talked about kind of that simplicity aspect. That's a big one, uh, adaptability. Uh, kind of the Swiss Army knife approach, right? The basic skill set applied. Another one I would add to that is functional. It has to, it has to actually do its job. It has to work. There's, there's a lot of stuff in martial arts that uh, doesn't pass the functionality test. Um, you can do certain techniques, and there, there is a caveat to this, which we'll, we'll get. But generally speaking, uh, under stress, somebody attacking you. Does it work in that situation? Does it function? A right cross, palm, heel, or a fist—it's functional. Somebody grabs you. To, uh, a lot of my friends practice, uh, you know, traditional Japanese karate, and the, the reverse punch—that's their bread and butter. And it fits in a lot of situations. Somebody grabs you by the collar, reverse punch. Grab you by the wrist, reverse punch. Distance, reverse punch. It it crosses the it passes that filter. But there are other things in in martial arts that don't pass that that particular filter. A lot of uh, turning or jumping or things that are excessively flashy. So that would be the kind of the calibrator to the the point earlier with something that may be a bit more technical. Under stress, it has to be simple. It has to be adapt adaptable. It has to be functional at, at the same time. And then the, the last one I would add to that, and I see that Jesse's taking notes. What, what a gr- great student you have taking notes, astute. Right? Uh, would be explosive, this idea that um, we might get into this idea thinking, OK, I've done judo for a long time and given enough time I can out judo most people or I can out jujitsu most people. But violence is sudden and it's on you. It's not when you expect. Uh, time isn't in your favor. It's not I'm going to win through several rounds and wear you down. No, it's instant. So your response has to be, for lack of a better word, explosive. So if you've been keeping notes safe, S-A-F-E, simple, adaptable, functional and explosive is the, the mantra that we're, we're pushing, at least in this podcast.
2: I mean, it's great. It's awesome. Uh, I totally agree. Um, yeah. I mean, where I would go with that, the thing that was coming to mind is like, that's all true, but um, is that enough to keep people for 50 years, you know, like, is that enough, you know, because like, there's this sort of, this is sort of the balance where it's like, okay, this is really what I need to teach you. And it's, it's like a handful of techniques and you just need to practice those every day and you'll be great. But if you do that for the rest of your life, you're going to be bored out of your mind, you know? So then we kind of have to sprinkle in like all this fun stuff, you know, like, yeah, the spinning kicks aren't the most practical. Some of them are spinning hook kick, man. is a really good way to knock somebody out. That might not be the thing I turn to on the street when I'm in my street shoes and it's a slippy surface and all that kind of stuff. But against a, a advanced practitioner, I have knocked a lot of people out with spinning hook kick, and they're you know even tornado roundhouse kick. Oof, you get a ton of power. I take your head right off your shoulders. Now, there's also a lot of techniques that I thought would never work. Okay, a lot of wrist lock submissions. I thought, oh, these would never work. And then I got better at jujitsu, and I was like, oh, I was doing all over the place. People are like, what? Because they're not expecting it. They're, they're really good surprise That's attacks, little- right? Little foot little- sweeps. You know, you think, oh, those aren't going to work that well. You know, you got to do something powerful, like a double leg, single leg, all this kind of stuff. They're not expecting a little foot sweep. You know, you're moving around, whoop, whoop, the person oh, falls over, bam, you can't stop them. And like, so a lot of things that you wouldn't think would work, they end up, they actually work. Like, almost everything works at some level. Okay. It worked at the right moment when you catch them off guard, things will work. But are they going to be the thing that you want to turn to as your bread and butter move that you use every single time? No. But that, group is very small it is very small and the more that you know the more you train the smaller that group gets okay it gets smaller and smaller and smaller and it's like is that enough to sustain people because if people want to get good at anything they're not going to train for two months six months you can take some of the most applicable stuff in the world if they only do it for six months they're going to be rubbish in my mind But you can't get that good you know, that's one of the most my biggest pet peas about martial art movies is that little like week long like motivational <laughs> montage. And then the guy comes uh, yeah. down, and he's just like martial art legend. It's like that's not how it works, guys. You gotta spend like 20 years training hard to like become like a, a a you know human weapon, if that's what you're looking to achieve. Oh absolutely, and solid point. So uh
0: the the self-defense, the goal isn't necessarily to be a, a tournament champion, the idea is basic martial arts so a restructuring of you know what we traditionally think now when when i said earlier kind of traditional traditional to different people will will kind of tell you a lot about their their practice so somebody comes from a traditional japanese jiu-jitsu perspective traditional is warfare old school u.s uh practitioner doing like judo it's like 1950s or early 1900s judo is traditional uh, when I'm talking about making traditional martial arts that we see now, it's the, the standard uh, teaching the basics, teaching kata, and teaching free sparring, that model that has become the, the staple for, for traditional martial arts. I don't think that model facilitates self-defense retention very, very well. So what I would say is when the student comes in, the basics need to be the basics for self-defense. And then, of course, we want them to be lifelong martial art practitioners because, yeah, they're not going to be able to sustain their practice like, oh, practice your whatever number of foundational strikes and your whatever number of this and this many that um, it has to be a bit more. You have to get them enculturated into the practice. So you do that by offering this this, this training and then seeing where the extension goes in terms of like, OK, this is where your, your self-defense training kind of caps. And here's where. This is what could happen. You want to know a bit more? You have to practice more. We, we can't train you in everything in a, in a six-month course. So from a business perspective, as well as from a martial art perspective, leading knuckles first, teaching practical martial arts right at the beginning, and then having them see, okay, there's actually more to this. I can see where this technique came from, why it was chosen, uh, how, how it can evolve, how it can blossom. And I think you get uh, when the student down the road who started as a practical-minded person comes in, and they learn kata, their filter is a lot different than someone who learned kata purely for the aesthetic of kata. They're actually seeing practicality in this. Um, uh, also, another point I think that's an important to, to mention if we teach self defense in a way that is um, how we teach traditional kata and basics, it, it will become very, very boring. I think that resistance element, the ability to disguise repetition that you know, that's a solid instructor must have uh that's where the instructor adds their flavor to it are they using language are they using escalation are they adding aggression and resistance to the training um is it contextual training stuff that the person can actually see them self-applying and in that regard um, you'll be able to teach the the basics the self-defense core a lot longer than i think what what we might expect It, it all falls to are we teaching the the effective techniques in an effective way. I think I mentioned that a bit earlier. That it's it's a twofold path. You can teach the you know the most dangerous or whatever uh, criteria of techniques you you have, but if you're not teaching them in a way that they can actually see them applied, see the value of it. Yeah, they're not going to stick around. They're like, okay, yeah, I've got it. Wrist escape, I've got it. Hands up, you know th- this type of a thing. But if when you add that aggression, I think it it uh, it fires off all the same benefits that you get in. You know, sparring—they can—they can see some of the benefits in, in the self defense.
2: Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. No, a good instructor can, you know, take a small amount of curriculum and really push it out. There's no doubt about that. Um, at some point, though, you know, you need to spice it up a little bit. I'm sure you trained in Korea a little bit when you were over there, maybe. Uh, the, the taekwondo, or, or I, I
0: trained uh, Brazilian jiu jitsu and
2: uh, judo. In, in Korea, I did a little bit of Hapkido as well while I was I was there. And why I ask is because, you know, the Korean mindset about teaching is, like, very, very simple. Like, just focus on, like, the core skills and just, just teach them to nausea. And, like, I think most, um, like, especially, like, maybe not at the academy level, but, it, you know, when you join the team. Like, for example, like, my wife, when she first joined her team, she spent six months just bouncing. That's it. Like that's all she worked on because footwork is incredibly important. And so she just did jump rope and, and, and bouncing and footwork and stuff for six months. And then she did all the kicks really slowly because like, that's really important to be able to do the kicks very slowly. So you can put your foot in the right position and like layering in these things in, in the most simplistic, but very, very effective way. In, in Western curriculum, you'll look at like really top notch, um, like, fight gyms and stuff, and they have tremendous amounts of curriculum, and it's because the Western mindset wants that, I want more, I want more, I want more little things and things, tricks and stuff like that, and, like, if you don't have it, Westerners aren't entertained, so I think, you know, both these cultures, every culture has some great things and some bad things, and both these cultures have something to teach us, and like you said, simplicity is king, Um, but also in Korea they have like three students and they're all really good, but that's it. And in America, yeah, like 300 students. Okay. So the key is, and if you do it right, I think you can get three of those 300 students to be very good too. So trying to balance uh, those two worlds. Oh, absolutely. So, solid
0: point. It's uh, culturally the, the U.S., when they approach any kind of uh, sport or martial arts, it's from that kind of consumer perspective, right? So they approach the the, the dojo, dojang, and they they expect that they're giving money and then they're going to get something in return. Like, okay, how many techniques did I learn? How how many belts did I get? That's that's kind of the mindset they're they're looking at. Whereas when you go in in depth to with with martial art practice, kind of the deeper level to it, of course, all those other trimmings kind of fall off. And you know the 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 value of slowing down your technique, analyzing every little detail. You understand it because you you're you're not worried about all the other stuff. You 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 know that okay, this is making me making me better. But it's a it's a lot harder to to teach that to a beginner who hasn't gone through all the trials. Like you said, that's a a, a much higher level in in uh, in Korea, for example. So there's there's definitely to it. That's why I do enjoy teaching uh, private lessons, uh, one on ones, because you can. Go deeper. You 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 can get uh, really specific about certain things, and I think that's why uh, a lot of students do private lessons is specifically for that. That the the group class uh, the focus is different. You're you're playing to the common denominator of the group, but when you do the a, a private lesson, you can go a lot deeper, uh, custom to the student. You can look at uh, certain foundational skills that maybe they skipped over that were passed off when they shouldn't have been passed off in terms of uh group classes
2: yeah yeah no we've had a lot of success with private lessons in fact and it's one of the things that we've been leaning into over the years we have pretty challenging um testings and we have a lot of curriculum and my master you know would come and he'd say you know master rose you just have too much curriculum this is crazy you know like all these defense you know we have self-defense moves and forms and stuff and he does like half of a form you know and he's got like no self-defense moves anymore and he's just made it very simple and i'm like yeah but i believe in my students i believe they can achieve it and at first you know a lot of students were failing those those evaluations and they weren't able to learn all the curriculum and i did have to come down on some of the curriculum um, over the years But one of the things that I realized in that struggle to try to get my students to the level that I knew they were able to, because I'm an American and I was able to achieve it, and I started as a little kid and I was serious. I want I, you know, I don't want the little little dragons thing or anything like that. I I wanted I want to be Bruce Lee when I was six years old. Like I was serious about it, and I thought these kids can be serious too. It's just how you treat them, right? So I, I treated them as adults, and we gave them an adult amount of curriculum, and they were struggling because. In America, we become a little pampered, you know, Um, but with the private lessons, we've had incredible success where we say, look, look, if you're having trouble, just get a private lesson. We'll go through systematically all the curriculum with you so you can learn it and get in your body at a high level of proficiency with an instructor. And um, that's been super helpful. And then that's sort of branching off into some people just wanting to do a private lesson to work on certain skill sets. Um, So I know you were talking about you did a lot of private lessons, and and not a lot of people do that. A lot of schools, you know, they just focus on the group lessons, but I think there's a lot to be offered in those private lessons.
0: uh, Absolutely. Entering a martial arts school for a lot of people is a very intimidating thing. I mean, you look at all these cliches. The Karate Kid universe, you walk in and there's this instructor that's sizing you up and you got a target on your head, basically. It's not a a pleasant experience. Now, you compound that with someone who's been sexually assaulted, for example. They walk into a school, majority of the class is men. And the guy teaching is like six foot four, 300 pounds. He's going to teach you self-defense, right? How much faith do you really have in that technique that he's going to teach you? is going to work in an actual situation. Your physicality is different, your emotions different. This guy, like part-time uh, MMA fighter, it's not the same. Whereas with private lessons, uh, it also falls a bit more on the skill of the instructor to establish that rapport with the student, understand the student's needs, and then adapt and uh, teach them really what, like we talked about, that medicine before the right amount for for that student. I've had, um, I've seen people at least in the group classes. The, some uh women have come to the class broken down certain triggers certain hand positions on the neck trigger and they break down they're crying and i'd invite them to do a private lesson or uh you know invite them to train with my wife or, or do uh something that's not in that group setting drastically different huge change because they feel comfortable first of all you're going at their own pace it's a much different experience uh but there is always a balance at some point, you do need bo- different body types. You do need a bit of aggression. And that's when the group class, of course, comes in. But that uh, initial, the basics, I think, uh, learning them from a, a, a private lesson is one of one of the best ways to do it. When I, I do travel uh, abroad, like when I went to Okinawa, I made sure I was training group classes as well as private lessons with the instructor. Because you, you, get, you get inside the instructor's mind a little bit. You learn uh, much more about them, the more depth uh, associated with it. Um, I think that could be a potential future avenue for a lot of martial arts schools is they do have private lessons, but it's never never pushed as much as the group class, of course, because of time and because of the number of students that you want to get in. But um, to kind of save the character of martial arts as well, I think private lessons are really, really important.
2: I um, remember reading once, like back when I first first moving back to America, that the wealthiest Korean in America was a Taekwondo teacher. Who taught principally private lessons. And I thought, wow, that is weird. You know? So there's a way, there's a way to make those private lessons work. Not only, obviously, we've just been talking about the benefits of them, which are extraordinary, but financially too, to to make it work out with private lessons like that. I don't know how we're, we're getting there, but <laughs> I don't yeah, know, if it's the healthiest Korean in America teaching private lessons, but I mean apparently it's possible.
0: It's, it, it is interesting to think yeah, um, I think with you know martial arts being a lot more accessible these days, um, any any person naturally can be more discernible. so they can Google search and look up what you teach and compare it to this and that so that's where the, the quality comes in and I think yeah with to your point the, the gentleman who is able to make a, a very good living teaching private lessons probably he's he's been able to check that box of quality mm-hmm. a lot higher so that in their mind, they they don't have okay this is the the budget for for karate lessons no no it's it's a lot higher because karate or martial arts taekwondo is really important to to them because of the quality that they they see it, it benefiting them whereas um we we as as a martial art industry are still competing with some of these sports basketball football
2: even though in my mind they they're not the same thing you know it's not even the same principle competition like a lot of times you get so infighty but the truth is the school down the street that has about 100 students is not your competitor i mean not really they're a drop in the bucket you know the gym right across from you the the gold's gym across from you that has like ten thousand members yeah that's a much bigger uh, competitor the 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 soccer league that's got like ten thousand competitors in it that's a much bigger competitor than you The, the 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 dance gym or the the um um with a tumbling gymnastics Gymnastics gym is what i'm thinking of those are much bigger competitors to you those are huge facilities with tons and tons of students so i think it's good to remind ourselves that absolutely Uh, so uh back onto the kind of the, the
0: practical side any questions you guys have you mentioned uh student questions something to that effect
1: so not so much student questions i'm sure we oh, okay. have questions you know coming in and sometimes our students will watch the show and talk to us and say okay fair enough it's a cool conversation i do have one question maybe a question to wrap it up i know we've we've gone uh, over an hour at least um
0: it just barely got started you guys well oh, yes, <laughs> that's been so fun
1: that's what's so fun about it um we've talked about traditional martial arts progressive martial arts practical martial arts um, the things that make martial arts practical, some things that I've noticed. We have practical, we have technical, and then we've kind of been skirting around in specialization. And that's something I want to tap into just a little bit before we wrap up. Um, what is the role of specialization in martial arts practice, but in self-defense practice as well, because you can have uh, a really good set of fundamental principles, but that's just something I'm curious about, the role of specialization. So saying, ooh, you know, when is it necessary to specialize? And and what does that look like? And how do you discern when it's time to start digging deeper
0: uh, into situations? Fair enough. Good good question. So uh, I'll use kind of this analogy. Um, sport, sport martial art is like taking a test, right? You, You know the day you're going to take the test, you know the subjects you know the amount of questions you're going to be asking you can prepare for that test right self defense is a much bigger question mark so what that means is uh it's a test you don't even know it's you when you're going to take it you don't know the subjects you don't know how long it's going to last so for you to prepare for those tests are are quite quite different if i know the number of questions and i know the subjects i can specialize does that make sense i can i can focus on okay the rules of this Tournament. I can't uh, punch to the face, but I can kick to the face. Uh, I can't grab, and I can make a game plan. And you can get really, really good at that. The mistake is to think that that is what everyone is going to agree upon when they when they attack you. So to to the point of when do you specialize? Uh, the further you get into your martial art training, I think you, you, you do specialize this naturally, and you should specialize, uh, to the point that Master Olds raised earlier was that, that balance, how do you keep people motivated? Well, they do have to see more of the martial arts. They do have to see more of the, the traditional aspect. They have to learn the forms. Uh, my, my approach of course is they have to understand the forms through the filter of self-defense. No one will, at least in how I teach, will be able to pass their first through, uh, first few belt advancements. Without core self-defense, that that is my filter. That is my my litmus test, if you will. Is is that that aspect to it? So as you dive deeper, yeah, specialize in terms of self-defense. You can specialize in. You, 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 there's different aspects. I mean, you can specialize in the the percussive aspect, the striking aspect, more of the clinching aspect, more of the ground aspect. But what we don't want to do is um, break the fundamental rules of okay, you know, disengaging, breaking free, keeping yourself safe. Versus, I want to win uh, a karate match with this person, or I want to win a jujitsu match with this person. When it's when it's not the that case, so part of your martial art journey, uh, as you you dive into the martial art practice rather than self defense practice, yes, specialize, get really really good at it, become a, a master in your particular field, and then uh, you know study other martial arts that amplify this, and you know take yourself to your your highest level because uh, this. Uh, process of continuously striving for perfection is is an attribute for for the martial arts, an important one. And self-defense won't cut it with that. You can get really good at self-defense and we want you to, but we also want you to be a martial artist so you can get more of the, the, the principles behind it, where these
2: techniques came from. Mm-hmm. Yes, and somebody has to take that sub-skill to its for this permeation, for us to figure out what are the true kernels to distill down for that core self-defense curriculum, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Say one more time.
2: So, sorry. Sorry. Good. Good. Good question. Thank you for for the question. Thank you, sir. Yeah. No. The great answers. Great answers. Um, sensei, I could talk forever i mean i think you could as well We'll probably have to have you back on the show at some Please point sure. talk about a different subject um but it's been a true pleasure having you on you obviously um i think both have a similar um thinking i think about the martial arts to us but also you know you have a lot of experience and and we appreciate your insight on these this topic for today so, um just any final thoughts
1: final thoughts. I mean, thank you again for coming on the show. It's been good, nice and easy communicating back and forth. Uh, Those are are my favorite to to work with or it's the emails go quickly. And yeah, I I have a topic down potentially for a future conversation, which is that creating contextual drills. Um, So there's always, you know.
0: Interest. Okay. Nice. Nice. No, thank you guys so much for, for the opportunity. I enjoyed the enjoyed the chat, keeping me on my toes. Good questions. I, I like it a lot. Um, yeah, thank you. And if I do make it to, to Texas, I definitely want to pop in and see you guys.
2: Yes, yes. we'd awesome. love to have you. We would be honor. If you enjoyed that podcast, please consider liking and subscribing to our YouTube channel, as well as hitting the notification bell. We offer in-person, group, and private lessons at our facility in Kyle, Texas, as well as virtual lessons anywhere in the world. If you'd like to learn more about our programs, you can find us online at risingphoenixtkd.com.